That's Colbert, all right. Skull's caved in. Never take a homicide picture before, son. Well, at least he won't be moving on this. That's for sure. I want you to cover every angle. You hear me? Every angle. Get going. In the Heat of the Night arrived in theatres in the hot summer of 1967. It was a time when America was undergoing its most tumultuous change since its civil war over a century earlier. The issue way back then had been slavery, and in the hundred years since black emancipation, the injustice had redevised itself into segregation. The story begins simply enough. A man, Virgil Tibbs, is arrested at a Mississippi train station on suspicion of murder. The police officer makes the arrest on grounds no more justifiable than the fact that Tibbs is black. The fact that Tibbs turns out to be a police officer, a detective no less, visiting from up north in Philadelphia, comes as a complete shock to the Southern law enforcement. And that shock soon turns to consternation as Tibbs helps them solve the case. In the meanwhile, you just killed yourself a white man, just about the most impact man we got around here, picked yourself up a couple of hundred dollars. I've that money 10 hours a day, seven days a week. Colored can't earn that kind of money. Boy, hell, that's more than I make it. Now, where did you earn it? Philadelphia. Mississippi? Pennsylvania. Uh, just what do you do up there, little old Pennsylvania, earn a kind of money? I'm a police The way I have described it, in the heat of the night, proves the old adage that there really are only two stories. Someone leaves town to go on a journey, or a stranger comes to town. Either way, what you have is a fish-out-of-water scenario. And what makes in the heat of the night, and indeed still makes it so powerful, is the topic of racism. Sadly, that issue has not left America's heartland. Just this past week, a black couple, regular attendees at a Baptist church in Jackson, Mississippi, were denied their right to wed there because the predominantly white congregation objected to the ceremony taking place in what the white congregation considered to be their church. What do you say? It's beautiful. It's breathtaking. Have you a favorite, Mr. Tibbs? Well, I am partial to any of the epiphytics. Why, isn't that remarkable? That of all the orchids in this place, you should prefer the epiphytics. I wonder if you know why. Maybe it would be helpful if you'd tell me. Because, like the Negro, they need care and feeding and cultivating. And that takes time. In the Heat of the Night was published with great urgency by John Ball in 1965. Ball had begun as a journalist before veering away into writing the liner notes for Columbia Records, veered even further away from novels when he became a music critic. Then sometime in the 50s, Ball found his way back to fiction and in total he would write 35 novels. Of that collection, by far the most successful was In the Heat of the Night. In fact, it was so successful that Ball ended up writing seven more novels centering on its lead character, Virgil Tibbs. 
Well, when I examined the deceased, it was obvious that the fatal blow was struck from an angle of 17 degrees from the right, which makes it uh, almost certain the person who did it is right-handed. So what? Old Harv's left-handed, Chief. Everybody in town knows that. Yeah, uh, that, that's what we figured out, Chief. Uh, Harvey's lefty, uh-huh. Well, you're pretty sure of yourself, ain't you, Virgil? Uh, Virgil, that's a funny name for a nigger boy that comes from Philadelphia. What do they call you up there? They call me Mr. Tibbs. The movie stars Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger. And while Steiger won the Oscar for Best Actor for his gradated performance as a bigoted but pragmatic Sheriff Bill Gillespie, it was the decisions by producer Walter Mirisch and director Norman Jewison that gave the story the chance at being great. Firstly, they recruited the wonderfully named Sterling Siliphant to adapt Bull's novel. Up until then, Siliphant's work had been almost exclusively for television, writing for such shows as The Naked City, Perry Mason and Alfred Hitchcock Presents. In that medium, he learned to turn out pages quickly and always present the scene in as lean a fashion as possible. It certainly helped when at last, Siliphant had big material that could benefit from the accuracy of his words. It's 4.45, what time was this man killed? Well, Sam Wood found him on the street about 3 a.m. The doctor here says it's possible he was killed an hour earlier. At 2? Maybe a little later, 2.15, 2.30. Would you feel the face and jaw, please? Am I mistaken, or has rigor begun? Yes. You'll notice, too, that post-mortem lividity is present here in the lower portion, so the time of death really has to be earlier, wouldn't you say? Next came the casting. Jewison initially wanted George C. Scott for Sheriff Gillespie, but Scott turned down the role. Scott might have been good, but any speculation is only that, because Rod Steiger delivered a career-defining performance. Now, you listen to me. Just once in my life, I'm going to hold my temper. I'm telling you that you're going to stay here. You're going to stay here if I have to go inside and call your chief of police and have him remind you of what he told you to do. But I don't think I have to do that, you see. No, because you're so damn smart. You're smarter than any white man. You're just going to stay here and show us all. You got such a big head that you could never live with yourself unless you could put us all to shame. You want to know something, Virgil? I don't think that you could let an opportunity like that pass by. The answer to the question, who plays Virgil Tibbs, was so evident it barely had to be asked. So the next dilemma for Jewison and Mirish was who would compose the score? The answer, Quincy Jones. At the risk of sounding obvious, Jones's music gave a sense of not only a place, a summer in the deep south, but now, at this remove of some 45 years, a sense of time. The music positions the story firmly in the 60s, but doesn't date it in a decaying way. When it came to filming, Jewison and his cinematographer Haskell Wexler devised a simple yet highly effective look. Instead of lavishing the scenes with warm southern light, Wexler used sharp lenses to give the film a look of immediacy. Of course, it helps that Wexler's background wasn't documentary, where realism is the only acceptable means of filming any event. After that, Jewison brought in editor Hal Ashby. Ashby had worked with Jewison twice before, and it should tell you a lot about both men that their previous collaborations had been the drama The Cincinnati Kid and the broad comedy The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. What I'm saying is their talents were versatile, and for In the Heat of the Night, Ashby always, always, always found the various rhythms for each performance. It's hard to present an example of that on the radio, so I can only encourage you to watch it on DVD. 
The editing always allows the performances to breathe, and occasionally, in group scenes, the image will cut away from the two people talking to give us a view of a third person watching, and this allows us a deep sense of perspective. It is very easy to forget, in fact, it is harder to understand, just what a phenomenon Sidney Poitier was as an actor. Simply put, before he strode onto Hollywood cinema screen, there never had been an actor like him. You can talk about De Niro and Brando, and heaven forbid, James Dean, but for all their techniques and talents, none of them broke the ground Poitier did. I'm not saying that he is a better actor than De Niro or Brando, although he is certainly dozens of leagues better than James Dean. What I'm saying is that in terms of color in American cinema, there are two eras, before Poitier, which was practically all white, and since Poitier. Since Poitier, we've had Denzel Washington, Morgan Freeman, Halle Berry, Whoopi Goldberg, Forrest Whitaker, Jamie Foxx, and they're just the Oscar winners. And yes, before Poitier arrived, you had Hattie McDaniel, who won an Oscar for Gone with the Wind. But neither at that film's premiere nor at the Oscar dinner was she allowed to sit with her fellow white cast members. You also had Paul Robeson and Woody Strode, but lamentably, they were exceptions rather than illustrations. Just nine years before In the Heat of the Night, Poitier had burst onto the scene with The Defiant Ones. He and Tony Curtis played escape convicts on the run, the complication being that they were changed together. What makes The Defiant Ones a truly landmark picture is that for the first time, a black actor shared top billing with his co-star. Curtis was a huge star at the time, and it was he who pointed out that if Poitier didn't get equal credit, the movie would have failed to live up to its own point. So what is the point of In the Heat of the Night? Do I have to ask? And it'll be all 